Corinthians chapter 5. But coming off that song, and before we jump into the theme for this morning, the book of Hebrews in chapter 4 talks about the word of God is alive and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, and it cuts and it penetrates. And then it says, And nothing is hidden from God's eyes, from his sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We can hide stuff from each other, but we can't from him. And then the passage invites us, reminds us that Jesus is our high priest. And that high priest is one who has sympathy with us because he understands our weaknesses, because he's been tempted in every way, just like us. And yet, of course, for him without sin and then there is this invitation let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace in a time of need can't hide anything from God we all get tempted and stumble we all sin Jesus our redeemer who did not sin stood in sins stood in wrath's place judgment's place and took the penalty that we deserved and now we are invited to be the recipients of mercy and of grace that truth can so permeate our thinking that it causes us to neglect another truth which is what we're going to read about in 1 corinthians chapter 11 God wants us to deal with our sin, but what happens when we don't? Well, here is a rather shocking chapter, experience, but the teaching is very clear. It may leave us uncomfortable, but if we're serious about calling Jesus Lord and following him, then this is what we are required to do. Apostle Paul writing to a church, the Corinthians Not a perfect church, no church is perfect, writes these words. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even Gentiles, unbelievers, don't tolerate. For a man is sleeping with his father's wife and you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? And you should have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this. For my part, Paul says, even though I'm not with you physically, I am with you in spirit. And as one who is with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the one who has done this. So when you come together, when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power or the authority of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? So that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little least leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be new unleavened batch as you really are. 
For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread, sincerity, truth. I write to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Any questions? Go forth and do. I wish that is all I had to say. We're going to pray. Lord, this is a strict and difficult, difficult in terms of being, it can be uncomfortable. It can get awkward. So Lord, help us through all of that still to hear you. What is it that you're wanting us to learn? What is it you're wanting us to do, to change, to become? Lord, transform us into an obedient people who love you first and foremost and above all else. Increase our understanding and help us to do that wisely in a way that you would be pleased, that you would be honest. So Lord, help in Jesus' name. Amen. You often hear it said that the early church was perfect, you know, that was the golden age of the church. If only we could be like the early church. Well, this chapter and many other chapters, of course, in the New Testament clearly indicates the New Testament church was not perfect. It was filled with people just like you and me. People who have sin issues in their life. And the remarkable thing, of course, is that Jesus still works with the imperfect church. He still works to achieve his purposes, to honour his name with fallen creatures. And of course, this also, before we jump into the passage, reminds us of that very important truth. Do not place your faith in the church. Place your faith in Jesus. For if you place your faith in the church, you will be disappointed. Uh, for we are all fallen. We all have feet of clay. Churches always got spiritual babes, infants. And spiritual babes and infants mess up. Church has always got immature people in it. And if it didn't or doesn't, then it's not doing its job. Because a church by its very purpose is to be going out and to be making disciples, which brings them right into the beginning again, babes, and starting the process again. You can feel the tension in here, can't you? Don't be tense. Relax. 
and I'll get the rod out in a minute. Let me break through the first eight verses very carefully. The issue is in verse 1. It's wrong behaviour in the church. The issue is sexual immorality. That means all types. This is a particular type, but the phrase, the word that Paul uses is of the most broadest, most general nature. All inappropriate, illicit sexual activity outside of the marriage covenant is what the word refers to. And in this particular case, this sexual immorality is of a man, a Christian man, who is having sex with, he's sleeping with, his father's wife. Now normally that would be your mother, wouldn't it? But in this case, because of this phraseology, it probably isn't. He's sleeping with his stepmother. So imagine a marriage where the dad is a bit older and he's married a younger woman and now his wife is about heading towards the age of the son, the oldest son. So imagine that sort of scenario. It's not hard. It's on the TV all the time, isn't it? Permeates our society. Here is a Christian man. It looks like she's not a Christian because she is not mentioned. She's just referred to and church doesn't focus on her at all. It looks like she's not a follower of Jesus. So not only is this guy doing something highly offensive and inappropriate, even to the non-Christian world, this was off limits. And they had pretty loose morals back then, sexually. They would tolerate and allow for all sorts of things. Things that would shock us. But less so. Do you notice that? That's what's happening to us in our society. Things that once shocked us, no longer shock us. We are being dulled by the influence of so much material. But in the ancient world, you know, cannibalism was okay. Uh, murder in some cultures was okay. Lying, stealing, thieving, all of that was okay in some societies. But in all ancient cultures, while they had very loose morals sexually, even they said incest is wrong. And that's the word that would describe this. And then unfortunately, but... Commonly, this is not only happening, it's being spoken about. It's actually reported this is going on. You could imagine the non-Christian community waving their fingers at the church. So there is wrong behaviour going on. But there's something worse as far as Paul is concerned. That's verse 2. It's the wrong response, the wrong attitude of the church is just as shocking. He says, and you are proud, you're pleased, you're arrogant. In verse 6 he says, your boasting is not good. It would appear, I mean that's all we're told. Read between the lines, it seems like what the Corinthians were doing was saying, aren't we loving Aren't we accepting? Aren't we tolerant people? Boasting, proud and arrogant about this revolting sin. And the Apostle Paul then says to them, 
you should have dealt with this and in the process of dealing with it that would have led to feelings emotions of mourning because what you should have done is removed him from your fellowship there's a loss and you would feel grief not joy and not a sense of vindication or self-righteousness or any of that but grief that someone in our family a brother is doing something which is not only wrong and you have to read between the lines for this to make any sense it's not only that he's doing it he won't stop doing it he's been spoken to and he won't stop the apostle paul says in verse 9 i wrote to you in my letter not to do this stuff so paul spoke about it when he was there paul wrote them a letter and he spoke about it and now it's still reported and it's not dealt with and paul is notice he doesn't focus too much on the guy he focuses on the church the church has got something to do here they've got they've taken sin too lightly and it's time for the church to act and paul's going to give them some very clear directions and a process his language is strange and you have to read it 30 or 40 times before it probably begins to feel comfortable for you but he says in verse 3 for my part even though i'm not physically present i'm with you in spirit he's not talking about astral travel he's not talking about his soul leaving his body and going to corinth and being there spiritually with him what he means is that i am with you you know what i think and you know what i feel i'm supporting the church in this decision that has to be made that's what he means and he's going to make it in the name of the lord jesus he's obviously been praying about it he's been researching the scriptures about it it's very clear what god says in his word old testament it's very clear in Jesus' teaching what should happen which we'll come to he says in the name of the lord jesus it's time for you the church to pass judgment you have to make a decision and the decision has to be removal because he won't stop because he won't repent because he won't admit that it's wrong because he won't agree with that and therefore he won't stop the activity so when you come together in our context that would be when we come together as a membership but however they did it in the early church when you come together on the lord's day and you assemble together and you have your worship service and you have your luncheon well then after that at a meeting when you are assembled however they did it back then and i am there with you in spirit i've communicated to you what i think should happen you have my support and the power or the authority of the lord jesus is also present there is a sense that we are gathering together in his name and this is going to be his decision then he says you are to vote for the person to be removed from the membership from the fellowship of the church he can no longer attend services until he repents until he changes his mind until he changes his behavior and in fact paul says verse 5 in a strange language to us hand this man over to satan for the destruction of the flesh what does that mean well notice the purpose is not as i've already said not vindictive it's not to hurt it's not to harm it's so that he might be redeemed so that he might be saved on the day of the lord it's remedial it's 
He's not going to deal with his sin, so we have to. He's not going to face it, so we have to face it on his behalf. There are consequences to this. And we have to, unfortunately, we have to be the ones who impose those consequences upon him. That's tough. That's hard. It hurts. It's difficult. But that's what Jesus requires of us. What does it mean then when Paul says, hand this one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? My understanding is very simply this. There are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of Satan, where he reigns and rules, the non-Christian world. And then there is a kingdom of God, which is an outpost within the broader world. Uh, That when we are saved, we are transferred, Colossians 1.13, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. There's a kingdom transfer. Once you have a kingdom transfer, you now live under a new king, under new rules, under new directions but if you continue to live like the people who are under the kingdom of darkness then you are to be returned to where you belong to the kingdom of darkness hand this one over to satan which implies that satan has some in the economy of god and god's providence satan has some purpose to afflict and to judge and to torment in this world And the Bible certainly refers to that. Book of Job, Luke 22 with the Apostle Peter. Jesus says to Peter, Satan has requested to sift you like wheat. So God allows and uses Satan to torment, to hassle, to test us. And he can't hurt or harm us if... We are living under kingdom rules and, doing, and walking in obedience to him. But as soon as we sin, as soon as we don't repent, as soon as we have the attitude which is, I'm not going to admit it, I'm not going to confess it, I'm not going to forsake it, I'm going to keep it a secret, nobody will know I'm doing it, God knows. And you are invertedly on the edge of the kingdom of light and on the edge of the kingdom of darkness where Satan can torment you, where he can reach you. Matthew 18, that's what Jesus says again about the tormentors. And then it is disputed, it's not clear. I mean, Paul says, hand him over to Satan for what purpose? For the destruction of the flesh. It can mean one of two things. Some commentators say it means the destruction of the flesh is physical death. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 says that Satan has the power of death. There are certainly people in the New Testament, Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, 1 Corinthians 11, people dying at the Lord's table. There are people who die. I've been a pastor for 30 plus years, whatever it is. I've been a follower of Jesus for about 42 years, 43 years. And I only know of one instance where I would say, I think I've seen God do that. I think I've seen... God, say to a brother, you're done. Time to go home. And God took them. Died ahead of time. Died suddenly. The Lord does it. And Jesus wants us to take this very seriously. You can't say, Jesus, yes, and keep your sin. That's what this passage is ultimately telling us. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Hand him over so that Satan will, he'll get a disease or he'll be killed suddenly, he'll be gone. But because he was 
a Christian, just a carnal Christian, a disobedient Christian, a foolish Christian, he'll be saved on that day. Could mean that. There's a second option, and I prefer this option. When Paul uses the word flesh, he not only uses it like that example, physically, this body, so the destruction of the body would be physical death, but he also uses the word flesh very commonly to mean not our physical body, but our sinful nature, the flesh, Galatians 5, the flesh and the spirit. And so it's probable, in my opinion, that what Paul is instructing the church to do is what Jesus instructed in Matthew 18, hand this one over to Satan, remove him from the fellowship for the destruction of his sensual, sinful nature, that that'll come under conviction, that he'll repent of that and that then he will be restored and returned to the church. It's the destruction of, not of his entire sinful nature so that he is without sin or sinless, not that, but the destruction of this particular sinful aspect of his sinful nature. That's that. Hold him to account. And if he won't face his sin, this will help him face his sin. And God willing, he will come to his senses and he will repent. The Apostle Paul is outlining a similar process and all we're getting is this slither of information. We're getting the end of the process. Like Jesus said, there's been a conversation and it's been rejected. There's been a couple of people talk to him and it's been rejected. And now it's got to the point where, well, now the church has to deal with it. And the church in the process of talking to him, if he doesn't repent, hand him over. Remove him. Both for the glory of God, the purity of the church, but for him, remedially, to confront him with his sin. And then comes the tough bit for us as followers of the Lord Jesus. Apostle Paul goes on to give an illustration about yeast and uh, bread and unleavened bread and so on. I'll jump over that and if I have time I'll come back to it. Verse 9, the Apostle Paul says, I wrote to you in my previous letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not all, not all meaning people of this world, immoral, etc., etc., etc. In that case, you'd have to get on a plane and go to Mars. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother. So you've removed him, now you are not to associate with him or eat with him. Now, some people take that quite literally and that when a person has been removed from the church, they have nothing more to do with them. They'll turn their back on them. They won't even eat with them. Are they correct? I don't think so. Well, what does this mean? Well, I think what the Apostle Paul wants and is teaching is that once we have removed a brother or sister from the fellowship, Jesus says that we are to treat them like Gentiles and like tax collectors. You're to treat them like they are unbelievers. Well, how do you treat unbelievers? Well, you reach out to them, you love them, you care for them, you present the gospel to them. You want them to become followers of Jesus. Well, what do you do with a person who already knows the gospel? Their seed is planted, they were a professing Christian, but now they, because of sin, have been removed from the fellowship of the church. How do you treat them? Well, in the same way, I think it's build a bridge, pray for them. But every time you're with them, confront them, remind them. You need to repent. You need to change your mind about this thing. 
It's not, don't associate with them socially and ignore it. That's what the church was doing. They were complacent. They were taking it far too lightly. No, 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 this is very serious. Take it seriously. And therefore hold them to account perpetually. And God may use that process to bring about restoration. In fact, in this case, that's what happens. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the guy does eventually come to his senses and gets forgiven and comes back to the, the fellowship of the church. It's a good ending. It's not always a good ending. What does Jesus require of us? That. Not to be complacent and to tolerate sin, but to deal with it. And not even to eat with them. Well, what does the not eat bit with mean? I don't think it's the having a cup of coffee with to confront, to keep in touch with, with a view to restoration. I think that's acceptable. The not eating with them, I think, is referring to the Lord's Supper. They can no longer come to the table. They can't have sin in their life, which is public and unrepentant, and then at the same time be remembering Jesus, the one who died to pay the penalty for our sin and to remove sin from us. That's inconsistent and hypocritical. Don't eat with them. So I think that's what the Apostle Paul is referring to. And of course, not everybody will have that view. That's my view. That's what I think Paul means. Otherwise, it's a bit of a conundrum. How do you treat a non-Christian? Well, you meet with them, you build friendship with them. You don't condone their sin, but nor do you condemn them or judge them for it. They need Jesus. But once, you find, once they receive Jesus and they come into the fellowship of the church, they come under a new kingdom and new rules and they are to behave accordingly. Well, what happens if they don't? Well, then if, like this person, if they go through the process of unrepentance and they are to be removed, then it's strange that we can meet and socialise and be friends with non-Christians who are immoral and doing lots of really bad things, and we tolerate that, for the purpose of the gospel. But you can't do that with a person who was a professing Christian. Do you see the conundrum? Do you see the inconsistency? Which is why I don't think that's what Paul means. I think he's referring, therefore, to the Lord's Supper. Uh, the illustration that Paul gives is simply of the Passover. The lamb has been slain. Jesus has shed his blood. And part of the process of celebrating the, Lord's, uh, the Passover was that the Jewish people... On the eve of their Passover week, unleavened bread week, the mum of the house would light a candle and they would go through the process of going all through their house with a candle, with a light, looking for what? Breadcrumbs. Leavened bread. Breadcrumbs. And to remove the leaven, go looking for it. Search the house. Clean the house. Because God wanted his people at Passover to have a new start. They were in Egypt. God um, was going to redeem them from slavery. And he said, and when you go, I don't want you to take the old food that you've been having in Egypt. I want you to take new food. It's a new start. Not with leavened bread, but with unleavened bread. It was all symbolic and it was telling that truth. You're leaving the old behind. You're going forward. And the Christian life is one perpetual Passover festival where we leave the past behind, the old, the leaven. And in fact, Paul would be using this illustration to say that this particular brother who is doing this sin is the leaven. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast. Remove him 
so that you can be an unleavened batch as you really are, holy and pure. Our Passover lamb, Jesus, has been sacrificed. So therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, unleavened bread, not with that person, with malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and of truth. Then Paul gives his correction about his previous letter and so on. So what does all of this mean for us? Well, this. Listen carefully. Number one. Just like the Jewish people would go search their own house for the unleavened bread. So I've got several things to say. Number one. Then let us examine our own lives. Is there any sin that we are committing, that we are grasping, that we are hanging on to, that we are not forsaking? We're not admitting that it's wrong and we're refusing to let it go. Is there anything like that in your life? Then I would encourage you, exhort you to examine your life and to get on your knees before God and to ask him to search you because you can't hide it from him and repent change your mind admit that it's wrong ask for his help to forsake it to put it aside and rely on him secondly you draw your own family circle as big as you like but is there anybody in your close circle family friends small group that you associate with on a very regular basis, people that you know, love and care for, and who know, love and care for you? Is there any sin in anyone else's life in that circle? Is there anything going on in someone's life that you've been complacent about, that you've been ignoring, that you know you should talk to them about it, but you haven't? <clears throat> Is there anything like that? What do you think you should do about that? This is what... 1 Corinthians 5, what Jesus wants us to do for the church. Now, of course, in your inner circle of friends, if you're the only Christian in your family, then that doesn't apply for you. Thirdly, let's take it out to the church level. Is there any sin that you're aware of, sin, in a brother or sister in the church? You know about it? You've been ignoring it, you've been complacent about it, you may even be rationalising in a way of saying, just like the Corinthians, how gracious we are, how tolerant we are, whatever. <clears throat> what would happen if we stopped that and we did exactly what Jesus said we should do? See your brother, sin, speak to them. Not about them, to them. If they listen, fantastic. If they don't, do you need to take it to the next level? Take another godly person along with you? And so on. Having said all of that, <clears throat> the issue is not sin so much as it's unrepentant sin. We all have sin. We all sin. It's though the attitude of the unrepentance, the refusal to stop, You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't have Jesus and sin. You can have Jesus 
or you can have your sin. Choose. And if you're on the inside, if you've already made that decision to follow Jesus, then it's Jesus. And you can't be doing that. And if you are doing that, then you're not only foolish, but you're going to bring yourself under God's judgment and you may bring us with you. And particularly if we are complacent, if we don't do anything about it. The last thing I want to say is this. Let those who have phones that go off in church... (laughs) Uh, No. um, Let those who who are without sin cast the first stone. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we need to get rid of sin in ourselves. You see, it's interesting, isn't it? I said I was going to stop, but I won't. Um, The Apostle Paul says, it's not our job to judge the world, but we do. It's our job to judge the insiders, and we don't. We've got it completely wrong. We're not to judge the world. We're to be salt and light. But we are to judge. Not to condemn, not to be harshly critical of. We are to discerningly evaluate that that is right or that is wrong. That's what the word means. And where it's wrong, it's a conversation. So therefore, let me counsel you. Let those who are without sin, those who have no unrepentant sin in their life, Let them be the ones who have the conversations. Let's get our own lives right first. Take the log out of our eyes. And then we'll see clearly. And then we can be obedient and deal with sin in the church or sin in the body. That's what he wants. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's easy to see sin in the world. It's even easy to point fingers at it and to make judgments and comments about it. This chapter turns the searchlight on us. It searches us. Can you help us by your spirit and your word to search our lives, our minds, our mouths, our actions, and where we find leaven, where we find sin, where we find self not being dealt with, Can you assist us, change our thinking and help us to forsake it? Lord, help us to be unleavened. Remove from us the love of sinning and restore and grow Jesus in us. Help us to be like him, loving sinners, but not accepting and not involved in sin. Give us wisdom for this, we ask in his name. Amen.